Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 29th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to return to our series on the Arab question for a week and hope to return to John chapter 6 next Friday for various reasons and recent occurrences in my life. I just didn't have enough time to write the John podcast this week, and I want to do it well. I am probably going to elucidate some things concerning the claims of Christ being the bread of life in a manner which is fairly unique even to identity Christians. So I want to do that. I want to nail that, so to speak, and hope to do it next week. Tonight we will present the Arab question, part four. So far we hope to have sufficiently explained the historical blood connections between Jews and Arabs as they are both descended from the ancient Canaanites mixed with other groups of both white Adamic and non-white non-Adamic origin, most of which are found right in the book of Genesis itself. And we also hope to have sufficiently explained how Jews and Arabs had significantly contributed to the formation of the modern Hispanics by mingling with the Spanish and Portuguese of the Iberian Peninsula for 700 years during the Islamic conquest and then later migrating along with them into the Americas. After the Reconquista, as it's called, and the expulsion of Islam from Iberia, those of Arab blood who remained were compelled to forsake Islam in favor of the Roman Catholic Church. The practice of Judaism being persecuted at that time under Spanish and then Portuguese rule, many of these Jews who fled the Inquisition in Europe were later forced to hide or to abandon the practice of their religion in the New World. One good case to study in this regard is that of Maria Nunes, who was both a Cuban mulatto and a crypto-Jew. She was married to her own uncle, another crypto-Jew, and she was accused of Judaizing and brought before a tribunal of the Inquisition in Mexico in 1651. With this presentation, while I won't discuss her case at any further length, with this presentation I will attach an academic paper describing her case, titled Maria Nunez, a Cuban mulatto, before the Mexican Inquisition and the familial ties of dispersed crypto-Jews in the 17th century. And that is an item of interest in the 
further and more detailed study of this subject if anyone desires to do so. I am not going to present or cite that paper length in this series of presentations. I don't think, at least yet. There is one more um, segment of this series on Mexicans in particular, and I might give it another look for that. I can't promise. In the Spanish and Portuguese colonies, true Iberians, <coughs> Iberian Arabs, and we've already seen in our previous con in our previous presentations on this subject that the Islamic Arabs had intermarried with the peoples of the lower portions of Spain and Portugal for 700 years. And that's not the southern half of Spain and Portugal. That was more like the lower two-thirds or perhaps more of the Iberian Peninsula, which the Muslims had controlled for a significant period of time. So true Iberians, Iberian Arabs, Crypto-Jews, Converso-Jews, and the conquered natives of these Spanish and Portuguese colonies had all freely mingled for centuries. And essentially the result is that Hispanics are really not much different from Jews and Arabs. And they should all be treated as such by white Christians. The original Spaniards would look not any different from most of the other Celtic peoples of today. And there are people in Spain who do look no different than the typical Breton or Irishman. I've met quite a few of them. But that doesn't mean that all Spaniards are white. Most Spaniards and Portuguese are now Arabs. Now we shall begin to elucidate the Jewish and Arab connections to another group which is the Mexicans. While there certainly is a degree of indigenous so-called Indian blood in the Hispanics and probably more in many Mexicans, many Mexicans are also mixed with Jewish and Arab blood which was brought to the Americas on the ships and within the ranks of the conquistadors. There is also a Negro element within both groups as African slaves were assimilated into them as well. But that is not the focus of this discussion. There are actually a lot of Negroes in Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, and great segments of the population have intermixture with those Negroes, as well as with Spaniards, Arabs, Jews, Indians, we read we we will read now in an article on the Sephardim from the Jewish Virtual Library. Imagine that they actually admit many of these things. Some Moranos, meaning the pigs, the the converted Jews or supposedly converted Jews, some Moranos had settled in Portugal and eventually moved to Holland.
where they were allowed to outwardly practice Judaism. Many settled in Western Europe and moved to the Americas. Moranos, who settled in Latin America, continued practicing crypto-Judaism for many years because Spain began an inquisition in its New World colonies. Fear of persecution led crypto-Jews to settle in remote villages. Today, descendants of crypto-Jews can be found in Colorado and New Mexico. And that is actually a rather candid admission on the part of the Jewish Virtual Library. But it does not mean that all the Jews moved to Colorado and New Mexico. But rather, it only shows how far they were able to spread by intermingling themselves with the natives. Concerning the Mexican connection to Jews and Arabs, aside from the paper by Clifton Emmerheiser that we are about to present, which is Mexicans Trace to Cain, the Son of Satan, and which Clifton finalized in January of 2008. There were also a collection of unfinished papers on this subject, which I have found in his files. Among these are Mexican War History and Mexicans and Their Multiracial Origin, which are also both dated from January of 2008. Mexicans violate treaties of 1848 and 1854 from February of that same year. I don't really know why Clifton never published that one. And a later edition of the same from August of 2013. There is a Mexican Canaanite and Cain interrelationship from July of 2011 which I will examine because it was written three years after the paper we're about to present, but that was never published. And finally, there is an undated and not quite complete list of Mexican Indian tribe names, some of which were incorporated into this paper, some of which was, was incorporated into this paper. Clifton actually provides a list in this paper which evidently came from that one, but that one has some material which Clifton never used in this one, so perhaps he was considering another independent paper, or perhaps not. Some of these seem to have been early precursors to this paper, but often Clifton found a piece of evidence or something offering a new perspective on a topic that he had already treated, and he began a new paper without getting a chance or perhaps without having the inspiration to go back and finish it. So perhaps we shall cite some of these unpublished articles before this series concludes. If I remember correctly, the reason why Clifton picked up this subject so suddenly and so profusely near the end of 2007 was a relationship which a friend of his had with a certain woman, 
The woman had children with a Mexican to whom she had formerly been married, or, I should say, at least with whom she had been fornicating, because a biblical marriage is not the same as fornication. A biblical marriage can only happen between a man and woman of the same flesh and bone as it is described in Genesis chapter 2. Clifton often attended gatherings with his friends and others and was bothered with the occasional presence of what he had appropriately called sewer people. Sewer, S-E-W-E-R. The hole in the street where the scum is drained out. And it's, a, it's certainly an appropriate description. Clifton wanted to educate his friend on the true identity of Mexicans. There are many white-looking Cubans or Mexicans whom even some identity Christians imagine may be white, since they may possibly pass as white brunettes, whites with brown hair and brown eyes. One in all likelihood, they certainly are not white. One good example of this, and I'll publish some, some links to these people, one good example of a non-white Hispanic who can easily pass for a white brunette is the actor William Levy, who is really a Cuban Jew and who looks white. Another is the Mexican actress Kate Del Castillo. After 700 years of mingling between Iberians and Arabs in Spain and Portugal, and an overlapping, at least at the beginning, 700 years of mingling between Jews, Iberians, Arab Iberians, Native Indians, and Negroes in the Americas. It is not at all likely that even the whitest-looking Hispanics are truly white. Sometimes I hear the protest that the upper class of Spaniards in the New World had preserved itself. They may have escaped mingling with natives and Negroes, but the Jews and the crypto-Jews have historically had the most success intermarrying with this class, as we see in the modern history of all of the nations of Europe. Look at the English so-called nobility, which is almost totally Jewish now as well as the metropolitan areas of North America. It was not any different in Havana and Mexico City than it was in Berlin, Amsterdam, and London. In my own experience, many identity Christians are too tolerant of Mexicans, even when they have proper Christian attitudes towards Jews, Arabs, Negroes, and other aliens. This is especially true in areas such as the American Southwest, where Mexicans have been present for a long time, and so often they are thoroughly Americanized, and whites have been inculcated into believing that they are just another flavor of European-descended Americans. Here in Florida, the same thing can be said for Cubans. But neither Mexicans nor Cubans are white, 
and both groups are more closely related to Arabs and Jews. Four months after this paper, Mex four months after this paper, Mexicans Trace to Cain was published, Clifton published a follow-up paper titled The Words Mestizo and Ladino in May of 2008. We will touch on that topic this evening. In relation to this subject, there are also articles from other sources which I have reproduced on Clifton's website, which provide corroborating evidence for his assertions here. Among these are New Genetic Evidence Links Spanish Americans of the Southwest to Jews, which was originally published by the Jewish Telegraphic Agency in September of 2011, and an earlier article titled The Secret of San Luis Valley, which connected certain Mexican families in Colorado to Jews through their genetics, and which was published in the Smithsonian Magazine in October of 2008. These I also hope to discuss before the series on the Arab question concludes. For now, we shall present and discuss Mexicans Trace to Cain, Son of Satan, by Clifton Emmeheiser. And he opens and he says, right away, someone is going to object, citing two reasons. One, that all of Cain's descendants were drowned in Noah's flood. And two, that Genesis 4.1 says that Adam was Cain's father. As for Adam being Cain's father... Genesis 4.1 is known to be a corrupt passage, and nothing can be proved by quoting it. As for all of Cain's descendants being drowned in Noah's flood, Scripture makes it clear that they were not. All we need do is go to Genesis chapter 15, verses 19 through 21, where it states, The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephames, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The first mention of these ten nations are the Kenites, and Strong assigns them the numbers 7017 and 7014 thusly. Strong 7017 is Kenny, patronomic from 7014, a Kenite, or member of the tribe of Cain. And 7014 is Cain, the name of the first child, referring to the Cain of Genesis chapter 4. Clifton says, the timing for this chapter is contemporary with Yahweh's first appearance to Abraham to give him an inheritance. This would have been several hundred years after Noah's flood and Cain's descendants were still alive and kicking. So we have in Genesis chapter 10 the genealogy of all of the Adamic people descended from Noah. And of course the Canaanites 
were descendants of Ham, and even though they were cursed, they are still mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. Then a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 15, we see this list of the Kenites, and they're not mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. So where did they come from? And they have a name which is derived straight from the name Cain. And then we see the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, and they're not mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. And then we see the Hittites and the Perizzites, and the Hittites are a branch of the Canaanites, and so are, I believe, the Perizzites, if I'm not mistaken because I'm doing this off the top of my head. I don't think that they are mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. So their, their origin would also be unknown. And then there's the Rephaim. And the Rephaim are the giants. And that's established in many other scriptures. And they are the product of the sin for which Noah's flood came. But Noah's flood was to punish the Adamic man and not the bastards. The Adamic man, the race of Adam, was destroyed in the flood, except that eight were saved. The Kenites weren't destroyed in the flood. They pop up here in Genesis chapter 15. And the Rephaim of the giants. And they were not destroyed in the flood either. And neither were the Kenizzites or Cabanites, who did not have a genealogy in Genesis chapter 10. Or the Girgashites. And then the Jebusites are another branch of the Canaanites. So we see all these ten nations in the land of Canaan. And there is much evidence throughout scripture that these Canaanite people typically made peace with their neighbors by offers of intermarrying with them. They did that with Jacob and his sons. Esau fell for it. Actually, according to the better Septuagint chronology, which Clifton himself had favored, this mention of the Kenites and Cabanites and Rephaim and other people in Genesis chapter 15 was at least 1,300 years after Noah's flood. Now, according to several passages in 1 Samuel, the Kenites were still around in significant numbers in the time of David. And the Rephaim, or sons of the giant, are still extant as late as 1 Chronicles chapter 20. So the first premise in Clifton's paper is merely to show that Kenites, or descendants of Cain, still exist even today, as they certainly also existed in Palestine at the time of Christ. This is established in John chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 11, where on each occasion and in different ways, Christ actually informed his adversaries that they were physically descended from Cain. Ostensibly, Clifton started in this manner to alert his Christian identity readers that we, that those who should understand the consequences which are identity Christians who should understand this history of Cain. Those who should understand the consequences 
also understand the gravity of this matter. Now he continues. With this paper, we will demonstrate that the Mexicans of today are an Arab people. Therefore, it will be necessary to study the many origins of the Arabs. Also, the Badfik Jews are an Arab people. And it will be through the Jews that we will be able to trace the Mexicans back to Cain, who was the offspring of Eve, fathered by Satan. Let's now get started. From the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, Volume 2, page 398, under the topic Arabs, we read the following. The people of the Arab world have no single origin. Although Arab culture was associated in early times with the Arabian Peninsula, over the centuries many different peoples have become Arabized through adoption of the Arabic language and other features of Arab culture. I don't know if I would call baby raping and sex with goats and drinking camel urine and robbing caravans a culture, but I guess for want of a better term, that's at least what the editors of Collier's Encyclopedia called it. They go on to say, for nearly all Arabization was through Islam, the major religion of the Arab world. The Arabs are as diverse physically as they are in ethnic origin. No wonder. There is no Arab racial type. Some Arabs do fit the stereotyped picture, lean and hawk-nosed, with darkish skin and black hair. But these features are in no sense typical. Negroid Arabs are similar in appearance to Sub-Saharan Africans, and light-skinned Arabs are physically indistinguishable from most Europeans. Now, Clifton responds concerning that remark about light-skinned Arabs. If Arabs are indistinguishable from quote-unquote most Europeans. It is only that, due to the conquests of Islam, most of the southern Europeans are actually now Arabs by blood. You will notice here that the Arabs have an infusion of Negroid in them. We will later see that there was also an infusion of Negroid among the Mexicans. Scripture is violently opposed to racially mixed mamzers, mamzer being the Hebrew word for bastard, which all Arabs by definition are, who are considered unclean and therefore sewer people. Again from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, volume 13, page 310, under the topic Islam, we read the following. The term Islam refers not only to the religion, but also to the entire body of believers and the countries they live in. Among the predominantly Muslim nations of the modern world are Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Mauritania, Chad, Egypt, the Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and the other states of the Arabian Peninsula, Turkey, Albania, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, 
Pakistan, Bangladesh, Malaysia, and Indonesia. Large Muslim communities exist in Lebanon, Yugoslavia, the Soviet Union, in the southern republics, the southern and eastern republics, China, India, and the Philippines. There is hardly a region that does not have a Muslim community. Mohammedism has evidently had a presence in China for nearly 1400 years, but Muslims are under 2% of the population and concentrated in the western provinces adjacent to those Soviet or former Soviet states that are heavily populated with Muslims. Continuing with Clifton's citation, the youngest of the world's great religions, of course that's Collier's Encyclopedia, Islam developed in Arabia, in an area that was one of the most significant melting pots revealed by history. And the great religious enthusiasm of the peoples living there was thereby diffused and given a universal character. Sounds Jewish to me. Again from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, Volume 13, under the topic Islam, and the topic, the subtopic, Central Beliefs, of which there are five that are termed affirmations, central to basic Muslim doctrine. The fifth affirmation is of the utmost interest to us here and reads as follows on page 311. Fifth, the community of believers includes all who reverence Allah, his prophet, book, and the day of judgment. This is the celebrated brotherhood of Islam in which all barriers of race, color, tongue, and status are broken. Clifton responds, Another people, and I don't quite agree with this, but it's okay. Another people, descended from the Arabs, are the Mexicans. They are a result of the Spanish explorers who had Arabs and Jews among them, and they still speak Spanish today. Again, from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, volume 16, page 80, under the topic Mexico, and the subtopic, Ethnic Origins and Language, we read the following. An estimated 300,000 Spaniards entered Mexico during the three centuries of colonial rule. They mixed with the Indians, producing the mestizo element which today predominates in the Mexican population. Most of the Negroes, estimated at less than 200,000, who were brought during the colonial period to work in the mines and on the plantations, have been absorbed into the population. Clifton responds and says, The same article points out that there were more than 700 tribal groups and 100 different languages among the Mexican-Indian element alone. Remember the Hebrew word Ereb means mingled. 
again from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, volume 17, on page 80, under the topic Muslims. And the subtopic, the Omeyyad Caliphate of Spain, we read the following. So many native Christians adopted Islam and intermarried with the conquerors that the original Muslim stock was thoroughly blended with the local peoples. Speaking of the Islamic conquered portions of Spain and Portugal. Now to that, Clifton says, therefore we don't have to guess as to the general makeup of the 300,000 Spaniards who blended with the Mexican Indians. All one need do is brush up on his history. The adversaries of Yahweh, the rebellious so-called fallen angels, have evidently been confounding and confusing the creation with race mixing since the dawn of time. Contrary to their reputation, Jews naturally tend to create melting pots wherever they settle. Our Adamic race fell victim to their agenda as it is revealed in Genesis chapters 3 and 6 and it has been progressing to this very day. Each stage in history, from the Tower of Babel, to Egypt, to Arabia, Persia, Palestine, and Rome, on to medieval Europe, and to the settlement of the Americas, has suffered the advance of that agenda. Clifton said that another people descended from the Arabs are the Mexicans. Of course, I would contend that this is only true in part, as not quite all Mexicans are mestizos by the traditional definition of the word. But Aboriginal Mexicans, like Arabs, are themselves a mingled people as the hundreds of indigenous tribes of what is now known as Mexico certainly also had diverse origins and varying racial characteristics which are still evident in many Mexicans today. For now Clifton continues by once again describing the Arabization of Iberia in part repeating some of what he had said in his earlier treatment of this subject. One cannot fully comprehend the racial makeup of the Arabs and Jews unless he understands the history of Egypt from AD 639 until the time of Napoleon I in 1798. The history of Egypt during this period is essentially the history of the entire Middle East. Genghis Khan, in his, in his exploits, I'm sorry, left a Mongol genetic flavor to the population wherever he conquered new territory. Egypt, during this period, found herself under various rulerships. In AD 639, the Arabs invaded Egypt and came to power. Next were the Fatimids in AD 909. After this came the Ayyubids in 1174. Then in 1517 AD came the Mamelukes, followed by the Ottomans when Egypt was governed from Istanbul. 
If you don't understand the history of the Middle East during this period, don't pretend you know all about the Arabs and Jews today. In the 1200s, Genghis Khan sold a company of slaves to the Sultan of Egypt, made up of Turks and Caucasians, people who inhabited the Caucasus, not to be confused with the white Caucasians, to become the Sultan's bodyguards and were also trained as soldiers. Soon, the Mamelukes, which is what they were called, the Mamelukes overthrew the Egyptian Sultan and put their own Sultan in power. The Mameluk Sultans then overran Asia Minor, Syria, and the island of Cyprus. In the wake of all these Arab and Turk exploits, the various populations were left with a multiracial flavor. Actually, genetic hybrid mutants. Now, I would think that many of the various populations were hybrid mutants long before the coming of the Mongols, as many of them had been derived from or had mingled with the tribes of the ancient Canaanites, Kenites, Rephaim, and other bastards. But arguably, the Mongols themselves were at least mostly of white blood at that time, and the Turks were also mixed whites from Asia. It seems that after the Rephaim and Anakim, the most formidable foot soldiers in the wars against the white Adamic people of Yahweh have always been hybridized whites, or whites who are programmed as militants for the cause of the enemy. We see that in the Antifa and other leftist groups of today, who are the modern foot soldiers and thugs defending the progression of the West into Jewish Marxism. Clifton continues, Mohammed, a half-Jew, founder of Islam, was born at Mecca, August 20th, 570 A.D., at age 40, he claimed a revelation from Gabriel and launched a hybrid religion. And that's a good description of Islam. Gaining adherents and an army, he soon conquered all of Arabia and summoned Persia, Abyssinia, and Constantinople to embrace his religion, but died before taking on Asia Minor, Asia Minor, and the Roman Empire. After his death, his fanatical followers pressed into Egypt, Palestine, Persia, and Syria, and 50 years later moved into North Africa and Spain, giving them, giving the conquered an ultimatum of conversion or the sword, raping the women as they went. Upon sweeping northward into Spain, at the beckoning of the Jews, they broke the rule of the Visigoths in 711, bringing with them Berbers from Africa, making Cordoba their seat of government. In Spanish history, the term Moor is used interchangeably with Arab and Saracen. Later, the Moorish forces invaded France, but were defeated at Tours in 732, by Charles Martel, which was a major turning point in history. I would not really consider the
Moors to be Arabs, at least until the Arab conquests of Mauritania, of what was formerly the Roman province of Mauritania. Mohammedism certainly is a hybrid religion, mixing elements of Judaism and Sabaeism, or ancient Arab paganism, which is manifest in such things as the black stone found in the Kaaba at Mecca, a meteorite rock which in ancient times had apparently fallen in the Arabian desert. It was an object of veneration at Mecca long before the time of Muhammad. It is also evident that Muhammad himself was at least half Jewish, although it is frequently denied. For example, in his Watchman's Teaching Letter number 55, for November 2002, Clifton wrote, Probably one of the more important aspects we should consider about Muhammad is that, reportedly among some authors, his mother was a Jewess. If that account is true, apparently we have an added element to the equation. Once that added detail is brought to light, we can better understand his satanic-motivated aspirations. Conceivably, he had the seed of the serpent flowing in his veins. With this added data, we can begin to acquire an idea of what Muhammad was all about. Before we get into the story of his escapades, let's document his apparent Jewish connection. Now, I would say that Muhammad had the seed of the serpent in his veins, whether he was Jewish or not, because even if he wasn't Jewish, he was still an Arab. He was still a, a, a bastard descended in part from Canaanites. Clifton says, for this, meaning the Jewish connection, we will use Alzog's Universal Church History, copyright 1902, volume 2, page 192. And William Alzog says, Muhammad, who was the only son of Abdallah, a pagan, and Amina, a Jewess, and was descended from the noble but impoverished family of Hashim, of the priestly tribe of Koraish, who were the chiefs and keepers of the national sanctuary of the Kaaba, and pretended to trace their origin to Ishmael, the son of Abraham and Hagar, was born at Mecca, August 20th, A.D. 570. That's the end of the Alzog citation, which Clifton does not elaborate on. And he says, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon on in volume 5 on page 205. Speaking of his grandfather and father, although debated, also witnesses to this. And Gibbon wrote, the glory of Abdal-Madaleb was crowned with domestic happiness.
His life was prolonged to the age of 110 years, and he became the father of six daughters and 13 sons. His best beloved, Abdallah, was the most beautiful and modest of the Arabian youth, and in the first night, when he consummated his marriage with Amina, of the noble race of the Zarhites. Now, the Zarhites were a lineage of Judah claimed by Jews, by at least many Jews, which is only true in small degree. When he consummated his marriage with Amina of the noble race of the Zarhites, Two hundred virgins are said to have expired of jealousy and despair. Mahomet, or more properly, Mohammed, the only son of Abdallah and Amina, was born at Mecca four years after the death of Justinian, and two months after the defeat of the Abyssinians, whose victory would have introduced into the Kaaba the religion of the Christians. Evidently, this is speaking of the last gasps of the Ethiopian kingdom of Axum in the 7th century AD, which we would hardly consider Christian. Christianity was apparently brought to Axum by Syrian monks in the 4th century, and evidently the kingdom of Axum was trying to subjugate these Arabs under their flavor of Christianity, which is hardly Christianity at all. Aside from Muhammad's Jewish connections, Jews were a large and influential party in the development of Islam and its doctrines and literature. We may examine this later in the series. Much of the Quran, written by Jewish scribes, was taken from Hebrew and apocryphal scriptures. Some sources indicate that Jews in Arabia turned on Muhammad and Islam only when they had realized that they could not use him as an instrument in their own design to convert all of Arabia to Judaism. But we would refute that, con that intention. Instead, I believe that Islam was set up to be precisely what the Jews wanted, to make Arabs a more useful tool of Jewry. In the aftermath, it is clear that Islam was a tool in the hand of the Jews, which was used to further their intentions, to destroy Christianity and the Byzantine Empire and eventually all of Europe. Fortunately, until modern times, Islam was stopped in the Balkans and in Iberia, although the Muslims were nearly successful in defeating Christianity in 8th century France and 17th century Austria. Now they have been given the streets of Paris and Vienna by the modern Jewish masters of Europe. Returning to Clifton, Describing this same thing, he continues by referring to Gibbon once again, but from a different source. The progress of the Mohammedans northward had continued unchecked for a distance greater than a thousand miles from Gibraltar. And had they not been stopped, 
they would have carried the crescent to the borders of Poland and the Scottish Highlands. The sedate Gibbon conjectured that the Koran would today be used as the principal textbook at the University of Oxford. And that's absolutely true. If it weren't for Charles Martel and the Poles and the Lithuanians and the Austrians who fought the Mohammedans in the East over the next thousand years of history. The Viennese, many others. Gibbon is accurate, since by modern roads, I should say to Serbs, I shouldn't forget them, Gibbon is accurate, since by modern roads, it is about 990 miles from Gibraltar to Portier, and about 1,050 miles from Gibraltar to Tours, where Charles Martel had defeated the armies of the Umayyad Caliphate in 732 AD. The capital of the Caliphate was Andalusia in southern Spain, so they had indeed traveled a thousand miles. Clifton continues with his citation. Destiny had a different plan. The battle axe, Charles called the hammer, Charles Martel, was not about to allow the Moors' advance to continue. The Frankish warrior was already hardened by 24 years of service. With this great emergency upon the kingdom, Charles's policy was to let the Arabian torrent diffuse itself before attempting to stem the tide. Here Europe was arrayed against Asia and Africa, the cross against the crescent, Christ against Mohammed. For six days the battle appeared to favor Islam, but on the seventh day the fierce Germans arose with their battle-axes upon the light soldiery from the south. As night closed, Europe was victorious, for Abdalrahman, their leader, was slain. In the confusion of the darkness, the Moorish warriors rose against each other until sunrise, when the few remaining alive retreated south. Now Clifton responds to his citation. One would think that Charles Martel would have received the highest honors the Christian world could bestow. But just the opposite occurred after the victory. Martel, in raising and equipping his army, had been obliged to appropriate the treasures of several churches. And the unthankful clergy never forgave him, but consigned him to hellfire. They'd rather have their gold. As far as the church was concerned, the hero of Portier could roast in Purgatory's flame. Now Clifton admits that this was gleaned partly from the Cyclopedia of Universal History by John Clark Ridpath. Then he cites a different source discussing Mohammedism. Henry H. Haley, in his Bible Handbook, on page 717. Mohammed, who lived from 570 to 632 AD, in Mecca, Arabia, declared himself to be the prophet of God, and set out, at the head of an army, to propagate his religion by the sword. Soon the world of Arabia was conquered. Mohammedan armies, under successive leaders, 
swept on in their conquest. Syria fell, 634 AD. Jerusalem, 637 AD. Egypt, 638 AD. Persia, 640 AD. North Africa, 689 AD. And North Africa was actually under the domination of the Germanic Vandals at that time. Although it was under the governance, governance of Byzantium. Asian and African Christianity thus swept away Mohammedans moved into Europe. Spain fell, A.D. 711. Then they headed on into France, where at Tours, the Mohammedan army was met and defeated in A.D. 732 by Charles Martel, grandfather of Charlemagne. Except for that victory, Christianity might have been entirely exterminated from the earth. With conquests nearly as rapid and even vaster than those of Alexander the Great, it is unlikely that they were made without great advanced planning, expenditures for armaments, experienced military leaders, inside information, and inside help of all people at this time, only the Jews could have been in a position to provide all of that. And it was certainly Jews who had brought the Arab hordes into Spain and Portugal as retribution against the Christian Visigoths. Continuing with Clifton, he says most, if not all, of the Arabs including the Badvig Jews, are descendants of Cain, whom, by the seduction of Eve, was sired by Satan. They represent the war of the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent at Genesis 3.15. The assault of the Arab Mohammedans on white Europe was a major collision of these two forces, presaged in Daniel chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 9 and I fully agree with that. Today the invasion of the Mexicans into America is another major phase of that great war presaged in Isaiah chapter 56 and Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 27. Thus, the Mexicans, like the Badfeg Jews, are devils in shoe leather. shoe leather. Every male Mexican crossing our border represents a penis looking for a white woman to impregnate, impregnate in order to pollute our race. They are unclean creatures. They are sewer people. Now, writing this in 2008, Clifton could not foresee the renewed Arab invasion and Arab and African, really, of Europe, which is just another, another phase in the same battle. Clifton says, Biblically speaking, those of mingled or mixed ethnicity are in the same category with the Arabs. Now Clifton 
cites a plethora of biblical passages. Ezra chapter 9, Daniel 2.43, um, Exodus chapter 12, where it talks about the mixed multitude, the Arab multitude that followed the children of Israel out of Egypt. Nehemiah 13.3, which with Ezra chapter 9 discusses the problem of the Levitical priests mixing with the Canaanites, even in the 5th century B.C., Daniel chapter 2 verse 43 which Clifton lists here mentions the um, the fact that the that Rome would fall because the people mingled themselves with the seed of men or with the seed of Enosh I should say and there are some other passages Clifton refers to here Jeremiah chapter 25 and 1 Kings chapter 10 and Ezekiel chapter 30 and then he says, by this criteria, Mexicans are indeed Arabs. Ezekiel chapter 30, talking about the mixed multitudes, all the mingled people in living or dwelling in Africa. By this criteria, the criteria which the Bible specifies in those passages, Mexicans are indeed Arabs. One must understand that with Cortes and succeeding Spanish explorers, over a period of three centuries, with an influx of 300,000 men, there were many Arabs, Turks, and bad fake Jews. Most of these mixed with the various Indian tribes among them, Aztec, Mixteca, Zap Zapoteca, Maya, Othomi, Totonac, Tarasco, Apache, Matlanzingo, Chantal, Mixica, Zok or Zoke, Guaycuro, Opatapima, Tapijalupa, Seri, and Huavi, Chichimec, Taltec, Huastico, and Otomis. I probably butchered some of those names, I'm sorry, which were also unclean sewer people, every one of them. From the bad fig juice in this witch's brew came also the ten Canaanite nation admixture spoken of in Genesis chapter 15, cited previously, or, or which Clifton had already explained. And that was the melting pot of ancient Palestine. Both bad fig Jews and Arabs had this Canaanite admixture. And thanks to the Spanish explorers, the Mexicans also had this same Canaanite admixture. Properly, every mestizo would certainly have it. The next time you observe a Mexican, remember, he is part Canaanite. Sore people? You bet they are. And white Israel has commissioned, was commissioned to exterminate them, man, woman, and child, everyone that breathed. The next time you are out shopping and spy some Mexican child mixed with white, Yahweh has commanded they are going to die. Because white Israel didn't do that while in the land of Canaan. Yahweh put that directive on hold so the Canaanites could become thorns in our sides and pricks in our eyes.
So the bad fig Jews are pricks and thorns. Arabs and Turks are pricks and thorns. And Mexicans are pricks and thorns. Citing Joshua chapter 23. And both Joshua Christ himself, in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7, and Paul in Philippians chapter 3, called those of Canaanite extraction dogs. So the bad fig Jews are dogs, the Arabs and Turks are dogs, and the Mexicans are dogs. So not only are they sore people, but they are also dog people. Therefore, every white woman or man, as far as that goes, who jumps into bed with a Mexican or anyone of a non-white race should be disinherited by their parents. That means to throw them out on the street and tell them never to return home again. If the parent doesn't, the next thing he know, he know, he will know, the next thing he will know is that he'll have a house full of Mexicans and they will throw him and his wife out into the street. One may wonder how we know whether a Mexican is part Jewish or part Arab. And the best way to know is if they have a Spanish surname. And Clifton's going to discuss this when we continue his writing on this subject in the next portion of this presentation. But the Mexican Indians were not like the Negroes in America. They were not formally enslaved by the Spaniards. When the Negroes in America were enslaved and then they were set free, they had no surnames. So they needing surnames in order to function in our American society, a lot of them just chose random surnames or the surnames of their former masters. So we have this entire cast of several million Negroes with Irish and Scottish and English names because most of the slave owners were Irish, Scottish, or English. That didn't happen to these Mexican Indians. They weren't compelled to take Spanish names. And a lot of Mexican Indians have names that are from the Aboriginal languages or, or from, from their own Aboriginal culture. And they use those as their surnames. And they're not from any Spanish or Portuguese words. But a lot of Mexicans have Spanish surnames. They didn't get those names because they took them voluntarily, because they just adopted them out of the air. They got those names because they were mingled with these 300,000 or more Spaniards, Arabs, and Jews who came to Mexico. That's how they got those names. And that'll be a topic in a discussion in the near future. While I do not often discuss it, because it is difficult to document, there certainly are archaeological, I'm sorry, archaeological connections 
between either Egypt or the ancient Middle East and the supposedly Aztec civilization of Central America, which is evident in the pyramids and other remaining edifices and also in the apparent practice of human sacrifice and other abominations. The squat monster sewer people who live there now cannot be credited with having built those ancient edifices which are found throughout the region. Unfortunately, there is at least as much quackery published in relation to this subject as there is sincere and legitimate research or scholarly descriptions of the archaeological discoveries. So it's a lot to wade through. But evidently, Arabs were being created in Central America long before the arrival of the Iberians. Now Clifton proceeds by discussing the meaning of the word mestizo. By the way, the Reader's Digest Great Encyclopedic Dictionary defines mestizo as anyone of mixed blood. In Mexico and the western United States, a person of Spanish and Indian blood, also called Ladino, L-A-D-I-N-O. Then there's an etymology given that mestizo in Spanish comes from the late Latin word mysticius, from the Latin word mixtus, which is a present participle of miscere, which means to mix. Mestiza is the feminine, and they have in the feminine noun, and they have in parentheses here that Ladino equals Judeo-Spanish or Judesmo. Clifton says, this definition is quite good, except Spanish blood doesn't express the entire picture of the Arab, Turk, and bad fig Jew blood. Actually, the original pure-blooded Spaniards were Iberian white people, so the, defini the definition can only apply to Spain, as it was occupied by the Turk and Arab Mohammedans after its conquest by the Saracens. So, the Turk and Arab Mohammedans don't properly have Spanish blood. Clifton says, so it's not entirely a mixture of Spanish and Indian, but a mixture of Arab, Turk, bad fig Jew, and Indian blood, and don't forget the Negroid. While well, here Clifton treated this as a, as a digression, saying, by the way, this definition led him to the correct conclusion that the word Latino is actually a corruption of the word Ladino. Then, examining Ladino, he found that it actually describes the dialect of medieval Spanish, which was peculiar to the Sephardic Jews. Here, in a Reader's Digest Dictionary, which was first published in the 1960s, we have the important admission of a connection between the mongrel mestizos of Mexico and South America, 
and the Jews of the colonial period. So four months later, Clifton wrote a paper titled The Words Mestizo and Ladino, which I hope to present and discuss as part of the series here in the near future, probably in two weeks. For now, Clifton goes back to the scriptures. The biblical connection of the bad fig Jews and Arabs to Cain and Satan. First of all, Eve's temptation in the Garden of Eden wasn't that she ate some kind of fruit from a wooden tree. Rather, Satan seduced Eve and enticed her to have sexual intercourse with him, which resulted in the birth of Cain. To me now, this is a simplistic interpretation of the event represented in Genesis chapter 3, but it is certainly not wrong. Though the definition for the tree she ate from in the Hebrew can mean a wooden tree, in this case it is a Hebrew idiom for a racial family tree. Also, the term for eat at this passage is a Hebrew idiom for sexual intercourse. So what happened was that Satan enticed Eve to have sexual intercourse with him, and Cain was born from that union. Some object to this interpretation, but eat also means sexual intercourse at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20, where it states, Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth, and says, I have done no wickedness. Now this verse is not speaking of wiping the mouth on a woman's face, but of wiping her vagina. I would say that the allegory is suggested. Are we also supposed to believe that this woman ate from a wooden tree? Maybe she had to wipe off the apple juice. Never knowing the reader who may happen upon one of his essays, which he distributed as pamphlets, or as he called them, brochures. Clifton felt that he had to include some explanation of what we know as two seed line practically every time he touched on the subject. It is not easy to express this aspect of the Bible story in only a few words. In this manner he continues, Remember, Yahweh told Eve not only to not only not to eat of the tree, but also not to touch. Not only does the word eat sometimes have sexual connotations, but also the word touch, which is naga, a verb found in Strong's number 5060. To touch, also to have sexual intercourse. This is supported by the following two scriptures. Genesis chapter 26, and Abimelech said, What is this thou hast done unto us? One of the people might have lain with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Genesis chapter 20, verse 6. And Yahweh said unto him in a dream, Yeah, I know that thou did this thing in the integrity of thy heart, 
for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. With these two verses, it should be quite clear that the term touch is a Hebrew idiom sometimes used to mean sexual intercourse. One would not be very bright to argue otherwise, yet there are some who do, suggesting that Ted Wyland isn't very bright. James Brueggemann, Stephen Jones, and there's a host of others. Of course, we have expounded on many other proofs that Genesis chapter 3 described an event which involved sexual infidelity and fornication. Clifton here is trying to make a case in a short time just sufficient to get a prospective reader interested in researching it further. So he continues. Paul of Tarsus used the same Hebrew idiom when writing at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, where he stated, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith Yahweh, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now that was from the King James Version, which rather inappropriately had added the word thing to Paul's text where the subject is clearly people. So Clifton responds, so that you will understand it, I will amplify it. Wherefore, come out from among the bad fig Jews, Arabs, Turks, Mexicans, Mongolians, Negroids, and all non-whites and mongrels of all kinds, and be ye segregated, saith Yahweh, and have no social or sexual intercourse with the unclean races, and I will receive you. And that's a fair interpretation of the original intention of Paul's writing. Yahshua Christ himself agreed that the bad fig Jews were indeed the descendants of Cain when he said at Luke chapter 11 from verse 50 speaking to his adversaries that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this race from the blood of Abel under the blood of Zacharias who perished between the altar and the temple. Verily, I say unto you, it shall be required of this race. And the word is race. It's not generation, because it's speaking of fathers and sons over a span of many thousands of years. So Clifton asks, what race? The race of Cain, of course. Who else but Cain murdered Abel. It would have been criminal on the part of Joshua Christ had the people he was addressing this to not literally been guilty of the murder of Abel. Furthermore, Christ would have become guilty of bearing false witness and no better than a common liar. It would be false witness to blame descendants of Seth for the murder of Abel that would be a criminal act on the part of God himself. So that could not have been what Christ was doing. 
Clifton says, About 125 BC, most of the Edomites in southern Judea had converted to Judaism. The following is from Josephus's Antiquities, from Book 13, Chapter 9. Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marisa, cities of Edomia. They were actually originally cities of the Philistines and later cities of the original Israelites. But after the Assyrian deportations, the Edomites had moved into them and all of southern and parts of western Judah as well as parts of southern Israel had become known as Edumea to the Greeks and Romans. Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marisa, or Marisha in the scriptures, cities of Edumia, and subdued all the Edumians, and permitted them to stay in that country, if they would circumcise their genitals and make use of the laws of the Judeans, or Jews, as it says in the translation. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers, that they submitted to the use of circumcision and the rest of the Jewish ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them, that they were hereafter no other than Jews. The end of the quote from Josephus, Clifton says, Thus, by the time of Christ, a good portion of the Jews living in Judea were actually Edomites. And actually, there is further documentation in Josephus that a few years later, many other cities of the Edomites and other tribes were forcibly converted to Judaism under a successor of Hyrcanus named Alexander Janius. Strabo of Cappadocia, a Greek writer, on several occasions in Book 16 of his Geography, corroborates this testimony of Josephus, as does Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 9. Clifton continues, We only have to go one step further to understand that Esau had taken Hittite wives of the ten Canaanite nations. At Genesis chapter 15, are listed ten Canaanite nations, and they race make so much that in Deuteronomy chapter 7 there are only seven. <coughs> the Kenites, Kenizzites, and Rephames were completely absorbed by the other seven nations of this group from which the bad fig Jews are extracted. From this point on, every Canaanite nation had absorbed the Kenites. Cain's genetic bloodline in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 1, they are listed as the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. In Ezra 9.1, they are listed as the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. These all have one thing in common, Cain's blood. Not only are the bad fig Jews descended from these named Canaanite nations, but also the Arabs. And this is also the bloodline of the Mexicans. They all come from a slightly different angle, but the results are very similar. 
The one thing they all have in common is they are all descended from Cain, whose father was Satan. Clifton now has in parentheses, apparently following the Aramaic Targums, Samael, the fallen angel to whom certain Aramaic Targums had attributed the seduction of Eve. As for the other races, he says, they are all, one way or another, satanic in nature. If you don't think so, just read Psalm 83. The list is too long to include here, but of special notice at verse 6 are the tabernacles of Edom, representing the Padfig Jews. Also mentioned are the Ishmaelites, who have long since been Arabized, and Amalek was also an Edomite. There is a lot of conjecture today of how we might protect our southern border, but the only answer is found at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. This is the only remedy, and that concludes Clifton's short essay. In the first three verses of Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read, When Yahweh thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou, and when the Yahweh thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show no mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. I added an extra negative in there with nor show mercy unto them. The Israelites were not supposed to show any mercy unto any Canaanite. While the ancient children of Israel failed to accomplish this, ultimately it shall be accomplished in the manner which is described in the prophecy of Revelation chapter 19 or in the prophecy of Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, and in several other prophecies. There is no escaping this fate. Joining oneself to Mexicans, Hispanics, or any other so-called Arabs, one, oneself, or one's children, shall suffer the same earthly punishment. No doubt come out from among them, lest ye suffer her punishments. Revelation chapter 18. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the enemy of all Arabs, Mexicans, Hispanics, and Jews, Negroes, Chinamen, and every other race. And good night.